Good morning, High Point. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 6, verses 22 to 71. It is a long one. Get ready. If you are new to the Bible and John means nothing to you, if you open your Bible to the beginning, there is a table of contents at the front of the book. That table of contents tells you where you can find all of the different books in the Bible. John is in the New Testament, and there's a page number attached to it. Once you get to John, John is set up with big numbers, those are chapters, and little numbers, those are verses. So again, our reading is John chapter six, starting in verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall loose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, 
yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so that so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Yet there, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who thought, who though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Thanks, Joe. That was a lot. Appreciate it. <laughs> there, any, there weren't any really hard Hebraic names in that one, but it was still long. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's been disappointing to me over the course of my life, as my metabolism has slowed down, <laughs> is how many uses I and other humans make of food other than nourishment. It's really frustrating. And um, yet, um, the most wholesome thing that bread or wine or fish or whatever represents is that we eat because we have to. Life doesn't just sustain itself. We require fuel. We require oxygen. We require drink. We require food. Otherwise, we stop living. Like, life ends, right? And so, this is the place where Jesus is sort of like beginning to hone in and increase and change the depth of his message as he moves through the Gospel of John. Does that make sense? And so, one of the things that we've said throughout the Gospel of John is that one of the most important things about you that you can control is what you believe. Maybe probably the most important thing about you that you can control is what you believe. And all through the Gospel of John, um, our sermons could have basically the same theological proposition. Believe in Jesus, right? If you get to the end of John, John explicitly says the purpose of the entire book of John is that 
um, it's a testimony from John as to what he has seen and heard concerning Jesus himself so that we could believe him and believe in him. And by doing so, we could have eternal life. And this particular chapter is where Jesus kind of goes full bore on eternal life. He's mentioned it a couple places before. In John 3, where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and entering it, what the new birth is. He's talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is very confused. And he, he says that the God's one and only Son has come so that if we believe in him, we could have eternal life. And then he just kind of moves on, right? And then chapter 4, he says about the water that this woman— he's talking about with this woman, that there's a water that if he gives her, it will bubble up in whoever believes in it to eternal life. But then that's all he says about it. And then in chapter 5, he refers to it. And he says to the Jewish teachers in Jerusalem who were kind of um, arguing with him about this person he healed, he says, listen, you study the scriptures really, really diligently because you think in them you'll have eternal life. But they speak about, speak about me and you refuse to come to me. So implicitly he's saying that eternal life is found, found in him, but not explicitly yet. By the time he gets to chapter 6 and he talks about this idea of the bread of life is when he gets really explicit about what he's really here to do, right? And he's saying that if we— somehow partake in him, that if we feed on him, we'll never go hungry, right? He says, I'm the bread of life. Who eats me who will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, because we're supposed to remember that John 4 has come just a little bit before this. And so you could break this down into two parts. In, in the first section, he talks himself—he refers himself as the bread from heaven, okay? The reason for that is, is because he's particularly connecting it with Numbers chapter 14 in the history of the Jewish people, and God literally giving them bread from heaven to sustain their life so they wouldn't die in the desert. We'll get back to some details of that. But if you want to read some context of this, the best context in the Old Testament to read is Numbers chapter 14. It'll make a lot more sense if you've never read that before. And then in terms of the prophets, I'll say a little bit about this later, but Isaiah chapter 55 is a chapter in the prophet about God sustaining people with what he will give them that amounts to something like food. And if they believe and they receive it, he will give them life and sustain them. And he says something about how that happens in Isaiah 55, which is intimated here. And there's an explicit quote from the passage right before it in Isaiah 54, which I'll get to in a little bit. So the first section, he talks about the bread from heaven. And then he specifically says that that bread from heaven, that is him, is the bread of life. The reason why he says both of those is because he's connecting both with eternal life. Eternal life is something from heaven, i.e. from God, and it is life continuative. So it's life that is like, that's good, that's flourishing, that's the kind of, that's the kind of life that you have like in the early chapter, part of chapter six, where it says all the people ate and were satisfied. Like they felt good. And he's like, that life can last. It is from heaven and it is life. And in this person who is brotherly, it can continue, okay? So the first thing is, is that you have to therefore then believe in the bread from heaven. Now, um, one of the things that is popular, um, that's become more popular, is um, materialism and a version of materialism in terms of a life philosophy called Stoicism. And it's essentially the idea that we become strong and more human when we accept our finitude and our death, right? And that that's all there is to us, that's all there's ever been of us, and that's all there will ever be of us. We're going to have a life, and then we're going to die, and then we're going to rot, and it's strong and it's right to think that way. And if you could accept that, then you'll be the kind of person that can face all the difficulties of life that come to you, and that will be good. <clears throat> now, one of the reasons why Stoicism is necessary is because human beings do not want to die. 
In fact, some of the people who we would consider strong in lots of ways, they're very intelligent, they're very successful, they're very wealthy. They have done everything they can to try to devise ways to, for people to die less or for people to live longer, including themselves to live longer, like working on trying to survive until the singularity or coming up with a way to digitize our consciousness or different sorts of things. Because even these people that seem to be very realist in the sense that they can manipulate the world and make lots of money and do amazing things have not given up the idea that they, want, they don't want to die, that they want to live forever. Most human beings can remember on some level when they first heard about the concept of death and that, and come to realize that they would die. And them having the notion at that time, like, I don't think I want to do that. And most human beings are really good at going through their entire lives, diverting the concept of their death, thinking as little about it as possible. Even in rooms, in hospitals where someone is dying, people won't talk about death. And so there, there's a denial version of facing death, which Jesus is very against. Relative to the denial of the reality of physical death, Jesus is a stoic. He's like, listen, you're going to die. You're, I'm going to die badly. You're going to die badly. Everybody dies badly. You can die morally, nobly, but death is awful. Right? We, the sting can be taken away from it, but the pain cannot. You are going to die. You need to be a stoic and a realist about the reality of your death. But to Jesus, that is irrelevant to the question of is there, is there more life through and after death? In that sense, Jesus can be the stoic as every stoic was meant to be and additionally believe that you can face all of that because there actually is life after death and our longing for it is part of our human createdness. It's not a mistake of our evolution, but it's something that God has actually put inside of us for us to desire it. The problem in this particular moment is that our, our, our means of accessing it has been broken. And so this is the first place where he tells us explicitly about it, explicitly what it means and how it's meant to come about, and where he explicitly offers it. He says five times in this passage, or something close to five, four or six, give me plus or minus one. You can receive eternal life. And what that means is, he says, I will raise you up on the last day. Every Jewish person knows what that means, the last day. It means the day of judgment. And what he's saying is, he's saying, you will die physically. Okay? You're going to die. He says, but if you believe in me, there is a life in being connected to me. Just like I'm connected to the Father and I live in that full sense, you will be connected to me and I will raise you up on the last day. There will be a resurrection from the dead that you will participate in, and it will be a resurrection to life. And that life will be not just everlasting, but it will be eternally living. Right? All peoples had fables of the gods where some, somebody was raised to everlasting life to torture. Right? Like Prometheus was like, he has eternal life in the misery of rolling the— right? Like, Eternal, everlasting life by itself is no blessing. And that's why Jesus' emphasis on the livingness of the life that he gives, its wholesomeness, its beneficiality, its naturalness, its goodness, its similarity to the life of God because it is the life of God. The quality of the life is just as important as the duration. The fact that he is the bread of heaven and that he is the living bread need to go together. 
Does that make sense? And he's offering it to us. And now on one level, this is one of the strangest sayings in the Bible where he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And some people would say, well, Nick, in John's gospel, there is no reference to the Eucharist or communion, the, Lord, the Lord's Supper, where we drink, eat the bread and the wine, and it, we call it the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. So it was probably just like a reference to that ritual. And here's the problem. Not yet! <laughs> right? Like when Jesus talks to these people, the, like in this context, there's no communion yet. There hasn't been a Last Supper. There's no Eucharist. There's, there is—none of that exists yet, right? It's just Jesus talking about the bread of life and himself. And he's like, look, you have to eat my flesh or drink my blood. Like the, the first way we have to hear this passage is how the original hearers heard it, which sounds like crazy talk, right? And Jesus takes no direct pleasure in offending people and driving them away. You might think so reading this passage. But, but in this passage is, is one of Jesus' actually most inclusive statements ever, right? He says, listen, everybody who comes to me, I will never turn them away. If any person comes to me, I will never turn them away. Because it's the—I'm doing the Father's will, and the Father's will is for me to receive everybody he gives me. And if he gives you to me, if God allows you to believe and to come to me, he says, I will never— turn you away. And if you connect that with Isaiah 55, which is the feeding on God's spiritual food passage in the Old Testament that points forward to this, it explicitly says, let the wicked person turn to me, and I'll receive them. So, so there's no like, well, as long as you're a decent, as long as you're a decent person, if you come to Jesus, he'll never turn you away. No, no. If you're a bad person, right? And as you read the rest of the Bible, spoiler alert, we're all bad people, <laughs> Right? We're all not—we're all wicked people. And so the invitation of God is to the wicked, to his own enemies. And it says, if you will come to him, he will never turn you away. So when Jesus gets really stark and is like, look, it's this, it's this way or the highway, it is not intended to be exclusive. His invitation is completely inclusive, however, on the terms of reality, which he is sharing. Does that make sense? So— Because of this, the drama of this passage is not in the concept of what God is offering. God is offering the bread of heaven. He's offering life. He's offering a food that never spoils. He's offering some experience of himself in which there is a hunger of ours that can be everlastingly quenched and a thirst that can be fulfilled. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying the problem here is that access to this comes through belief, through faith. And people have no idea what that means. That's the problem. People think they know what it means, and they have no idea what it means. One of the things that is very difficult um, in areas that are very meaningful is that human beings don't mean what they say, and they don't think about who they are. Okay? Um, if Jesus was here, how much of the singing we did at the beginning of the service would he think of as just religious parrot talk? We've all been taught to say these things, to sing these things. What percentage of it did we mean? And, and what do we mean by mean in that context? Like, we, we say we believe things 
What does believe mean? Right? What believe normally means is, I will, I will live in accordance with this thing as long as it is obviously favorable to the outcomes I'm pursuing. That's what belief means. Do you believe in marriage? Well, as long as it fulfills me and makes me happy, I certainly do. Right? We have these built-in pr pragmatic contingencies of what we're after, and we believe in the other, whatever the thing is, that's delivering that to us, so long as it keeps us on sight track to the thing we're headed for. Right? That's how we believe stuff. That's normal human belief. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven in John 3 and the world, that is that part of creation and the people in it and the cultures in it that act unconscious of God, how do they behave? And Jesus is like, the way they behave is they believe what they can see and they, they bet on what they can predict and they act in accordance with what they think is in their interests rooted in their worldly desires, not in a new framing of things around this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And because of that, what we mean by believe is not anything like what God means by believe. And therefore, nothing like what his Christ means by believe. Do you understand? Now, one way to try to sort this out is to um, go through all the things Jesus says other than literally eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? What does that mean? Like, obviously, he's being—he's doubling down. So they're like, look, how, how can you give us your flesh? He's like, listen, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Now, we'll get to why he says that exactly in a minute. But the question is like, what does he mean by that? Like, Jesus—I mean, like, think, think about the rest of the Bible if you've read it, right? You read—like, John 21 doesn't end with people gnawing on Jesus, right? Like, it's not like you get to the end of the Bible, it's like, and then everybody ate Jesus' dead body when it came off the cross and so went to heaven. Like, that's not—I mean, spoiler alert again. I mean, like, I probably should have, like, asterisks all over the sermon for the spoilers. But like, no, Jesus isn't eaten at the end of John's gospel, Okay. And yet he promises eternal life to a bunch of people. He doesn't literally mean what he literally says he literally means. So what does he mean? Right? So one of the things you can do in situations like this is you, re you really read around it. Because here's the thing about—here's the thing that's really difficult is how do you literally describe abstract realities? If I say, let's think about the number two, and you're like, okay, um, what are we gonna think about it? It's like, well, let me, can you describe it to me? And you're like, maybe, <laughs> right? Or like, if, if you had to describe what nothing is, right? What's nothing? Can you, descri can you describe what nothing is? It's like, I mean, Aristotle, who normally could describe things really well, is, is quipped as saying, it's that which rocks think about. Right? She's kind of like, I see where you're— see, But you see, it's a, that's like kind of a metaphor, right? Like, like most of the thing, almost everything that's abstract is learned and taught and understood and discussed in analogy. Right? John Wesley, when referring to God, used to talk about the analogy of faith. Because like basically everything in faith is an analogy. There isn't any way to speak about it literally. So people are like, you know, the Bible's full of metaphors. Which is like—and then what they mean by that is we don't have to believe any of that stuff. No, 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 no. The fact that the Bible uses forms of analogy and that some of those analogies are metaphors makes them no less real. Like, have you ever had the conversation with somebody about hell? And people are like, well, you know, it talks about fire, people burning in hell. I think that's a metaphor. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's a metaphor, probably. But you know what that means, right? 
That metaphor refers to something actually, and we don't have words to describe it, which means it's probably worse than fire. <laughs> I mean, you cannot believe in it because the idea offends you, or you wouldn't think God would do that or something. I mean, you could, but let, like, let's not pretend like in terms of language or conceptualization that the thing disqualifies itself because it's a metaphor. We use metaphors to amplify meaning, to get at something we can't get otherwise, to discuss things that can't be adequately discussed literally. Of course, the word literally doesn't even mean literally. Do you realize that? I mean, obviously, I don't mean the way the kids use it, like where they mean literally means, meta, means something literally that's not literal. The word literal means according to literature. That's what the word literally means, right? Sorry. Right? So when people like a hundred years ago said, this should be taken literally, what they meant was in accordance with the kind of writing that it is. So if you read a poem, you should take it like a poem. If you read a law document, you so when the early fundamentalists, like in 1910 said, we should take the Bible literally, right? What did they mean? They didn't mean you took every statement like as literalistically as possible. What they meant was you took it seriously according to the kind of literature it was. To that extent, they were right. Does that make sense? So like when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, we, like these are analogies. And what you do is you like look at them and you take all the different ones and you kind of put them together. And that gives you like a, a mosaic of like, oh, that's what he means. Because when he says belief and we go, oh, I know what that means. We don't. Okay. So here he says, right? He says, Jesus, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me. Do you see how Jesus is varying his words to slowly fill out this concept? So comes to me, believes in me, right? 56, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now you could say that remain there is consequential, or you can say that it's appositional. That is, they're referring to the same thing. That to eat Jesus' blood and eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, that, like that we would do in communion again and again, we do it often repetitively. So baptism, we do it how many times? Supposed to do it one time. Okay, we're from a Baptist tradition, which means we're promiscuous baptizers. But generally, it's, a, it's, a, it's an initiatory event, right? It's supposed to happen one time. You believe, you get baptized, now you're a Christian, right? But you don't take the Lord's Supper one time and go, did that? No, we do that one often. That's the, our repetitive ritual, right? So to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, that is to fully receive him, to fully come to him. That means we're, we're procedurally remaining in him. We're continually staying with him seeking to be with him, recognizing that it goes on, that it's a relational dynamic. Does that make sense? And he says, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. But you see how he says this? I'm going to use my laser pointer. Just as. You see how he's, now he's going to use a simile, right? Like, or, or like a closer metaphor. He's like, just as the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father, right? So Jesus doesn't eat the Father. Not literally. Okay, Newsflash, right? Okay, Jesus isn't eating the Father. He has a spiritual relationship with the Father. And he's saying that's the same thing as feeding on. The fact that he is constantly interacting with the will of the Father, is with him, has come to him, believes in him, trusts him, knows him, that's what feeding on means. Did you see that? Okay. And, and remember this is from John 4? When, he, when the disciples come back and they literally have— food, like bread for him. And he's like, hey, God, eat, teacher, eat something. He's like, listen, I have food you don't know anything about. And they're like, what, what do you mean? Did somebody, just, did somebody bring you food? Right? And he says, no, 
And then he, he literally tells us what it literally means. Right? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Right? So you see, Jesus' participation in God's will, like being in there and doing it and like finishing the work and realizing God has put it in his hands to do. And that connection with the Father is like food to him. It's like, it's satisfying on this incredibly deep spiritual, moral, emotional, human level that frees him from his slavery to lots of other sensual desires. And he's fo so focused on it and it becomes his central fulfillment. Like eating food is our central physiological fulfillment. Okay, you can also understand what this means by looking at its opposites. And in this passage, there are some very intense opposites because these people do not believe what Jesus is laying down, right? So the first one is the opposite of believing is being demanded, right? That God's provision should be what you want it to be rather than what it is, right? That God's job is to fulfill my desires and not dictate upon my choices. See, the first issue here is they want more bread. They got bread once, but they're hungry again. And they're like, listen, if we're going to believe in you and you're going to give us a sign from God, then you should do what Moses did. If you're the prophet, the second Moses, Moses gave us bread in the desert. You should give us bread every day. Then we'll have bread every day. That'll be fantastic, right? People in this era spent like 80% of their labor just on their food for the year. This would be wealth that they would just love to have. It would totally change their material life. And they're like, that's what you should do. And Jesus is like, listen, you guys. Here's the problem with that logic. You're thinking, God, Moses, Moses gave you bread. And I'm standing in for Moses, so I give you a sign. I'm going to give you bread. You've got this all wrong. Take out Moses. God gave the Israelites bread from heaven. I am the bread. I'm not here to give you a sign. I am the sign. I am the bread. I'm not the Moses. I'm Moses too. But right now we're talking about the bread. I am the bread. I'm the sign. I'm the one you believe in. I'm the one you eat. I'm the end of this thing. And you're not getting squat. Because the minute I give you bread, you're going to learn nothing. You are going to eat the food that spoils, and you're going to reject the food that will feed you to eternal life. You'll become more sensual, more demanding, more self-focused, and you will miss everything. I'm the bread of life. Right? To not believe, or the opposite of belief, is to be demanding. Right? Now, what happens, and all human beings are demanding with God. We all want God to do stuff for us. We want bread, wine, houses, jobs, promotions, health. We want our kids to be like we want them to be. We want conflicts to go away. We want people to care about us. We want, we want to be younger and prettier. And we just, we just want stuff. We want our lives to go better. We want things to be good. And um, God is not nearly as interested in that as we are. Because in most cases, those things, we, flat, we just don't need them. They will not add to our happiness or our holiness. They're, they're not um, the sort of prayer that he could grant to everybody. They don't fit in his sovereign will. They're ultimately— like, there's, no, there's just nothing positive about it, right? It's not what he's doing, and it will distract us from what he's trying to teach us, right? But the normal human response to that is that we won't accept it because we're, we don't believe, right? Jesus like, you've seen me, but you won't believe. And so what happens is he tells them, I'm the bread of life, so you could believe in me, right? And they're like— they listen to that, and they're like, ah, you're stupid, right? Because the thing about grumbling is, is you're not getting what you want, and you're getting angry, 
and that somebody's telling you something you don't want to hear. And when you, when you start getting angry and you're hearing stuff you don't want to hear, you tend to start listening to object. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever had this experience in yourself? Not your spouse or your friend or your roommate, right? But you, like, you're, 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 you want something. You're not, they're not giving it to you. And they're talking to you. And you're listening for what could possibly be found wrong in what they're saying. Does that make sense? It happens. You probably never heard of that. But it happens to some people, you know. They struggle. And what, what that ends up doing, though, is that it blocks our capacity to, un, to believe or to trust. We can't believe the words that they say, and we can't trust them as a person. And those are literally the two things that you have to do to believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? You have to actually be able to listen to what he's saying so that you can receive it, even if it's going to rearrange your desires and even put aside your demands. And secondly, you have to trust him. And the minute you start grumbling, well, you're not giving me what I deserve, and you're not giving me what I want, and you don't really care about me, oh, in your mind, in order to justify your grumbling, you have to more and more demonize that other person. The person you're demonizing is God. He's not bad, right? And what that does is more and more, like, it turns you in on yourself and, it, and does the opposite of fostering belief, right? Now, um, what that then leads to is, like, if you don't, if you don't break it there— it gets worse, right? So after Jesus doesn't do what they say, right? So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then, and then they, they kind of mock him a little bit. Um, and then it's, they start to grumble. And then Jesus says, don't grumble. And he basically says something very similar again. He's trying to push it further. And then they're like, well— And then, then they, it says they get really upset. They argue sharply among themselves. So they're talking to each other. They're not even talking about him anymore. They're talking about him in his presence, but not to him because they're so angry about it, you know? And they're like, can you believe this guy, right? And they, and they start coming up with more arguments and sharing arguments about why Jesus is crazy. How could this guy give us his fleshy? That's just crazy. Can you believe that? That's just stupid. I mean, it's like cannibalism. Christians believe in cannibalism. Like you've heard, have you heard skeptics? Like you, you've heard people attack Christianity where like, they say stuff like this. And you're like, you weren't listening. You definitely weren't listening. You thought you were listening, but you weren't listening. People who grew up in the church are the worst. Oh my gosh, they're the worst, right? Because they think they know Christianity. They never learned the first thing about it. They learned some vocabulary. They parrot listened to some sermons. They talked, they said, they sang some stuff in Sunday school that they didn't really understand at all. And then instead of their faith maturing, where it like literally had to like, some, some of their concepts had to get complexified and changed and stuff. They had to understand some deeper things about the faith. Instead of doing that, what they were really doing was they were, they wanted the world and they didn't really have a growing, deep, life-giving faith. And so they assumed the faith was wrong, and then they jumped ship to the world, and then they're like, this stupid Christianity. And they have this, like, basically, like, nine-year-old version of Christianity that they think is its, like, most intelligent structure. They haven't deepened in their complexified understanding of what it means to really know God. And they think that they have the answer to all the stupid little Christian things. And the problem with that is that it, it, it just tends to circular, and you tend to just share with other people who believe like you. And now with the internet and the apps and the social medias and the blah, blah, blahs, it is the worst. Because you can like find a little circle of people to go round and round and round in a circle with. It's not hard. Right? And it's, it, it, can be, it can be difficult, right? Now, this can happen irreligiously. Here's the other thing. It can also happen religiously. Right? Churches can do that within their own churches. They can get less focused on—because, I mean, if you look at this, this isn't, this isn't really doctrinal, is it? This isn't doctrine. This is like—this is spirituality. It's, in, in a sense, it's like, it's like psychology. It's like a, a form of like the consciousness of like what it means to believe in Jesus. There's, there's not a lot of doctrines here. Like, it assumes some doctrines. Jesus is the Son of God. 
John's testimony is revealed. Scripture, like there's, I mean, there are some doctrines assumed, but basically like, it's like, what does it really mean to believe Jesus? And you see, one of the ways to avoid that is to just dump Jesus. But you see, these people in this book are not irreligious. They're, they're too religious to believe in Jesus. They're too spiritual to believe in Jesus. And now they're self-referentially assuring themselves in indignation that Jesus is insane instead of listening. And they're even more blocked off and walled off from listening to the message of grace, the message of salvation, the way to know God, right? And eventually this affects everybody. Because when you move a little further, the disciples themselves start grumbling. Now, the word grumble shows up three times in this passage. This is directly out of Numbers 14, okay? The, the giving of bread from heaven and the grumbling of God's people in a relationship with that is this dynamic that I'm not going to get into right now. But it's, it's actually a really important one, right? So read Numbers 14 and try to connect them, right? Um, Devin will preach on this next week. He won't be able to resist that, you know. Um, but what you see with disciples is they lose their nerve. Right? These are the people who believe in Jesus. They've been following him. They've seen what he's done. They're in there listening to him speaking. And then after they hear the fourth version of this, they, they go, man, this is a hard teaching. I don't know who could accept this. Right? They're kind of like, they're, like, they've been with Jesus. They're his disciples, and they're, they're kind of losing their nerve. And Jesus is actually not very understanding with them either. Do you notice that? He says, he says, oh yeah, does this offend you? Right? I mean, that's not nicer than what he just said to the other folks. He's like, listen, if you don't eat my flesh and you are not, you're not going to have any part of me. And then they're like, I don't know if we can accept these. Like, does this offend you? Would you like it better if you literally saw the Son of Man rising in heaven? He's like, listen, the words I'm telling you are spirit. Like, what do you, what do you think I'm talking about here? Did you think you were going to get money? Like, like, what did you, where did you think this was going? Did you think I was just going to be king and we were all going to have money and women and what? Like, all of my words are spiritual. Th that is where the life is. And if you, like, if you're just like, well, I can't— The reason this is a hard teaching, because you're having a difficulty accepting it, because you're unwilling to give up the things of the flesh that bind you to the world— and its way of seeing and doing everything and your, your hopes to predict your way, you're really just being demanding in a really subtle way while pretending to be my disciple. You're actually trying to have it both ways. And now with this teaching, it's so direct. It's so stark. You realize you can't have it both ways. And now you think it's a hard teaching. It was always this hard. It was always this hard. Right? Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. But we're almost done. So, the opposite of being demanding, of pulling back until you get what you want, is to come to him, right? He says that like three or four times in the passage. You have to come to me. Give up, give up your stompy, demanding little thing and just, just come. If you come, I'll never turn you away. If, if the Father makes you able to come, then come. You're always, it doesn't matter how demanding you've been, how self-righteous you've been, how much grumbling you've done, if you ever have the grace to come, then come. Right? And if you've gone further than that to— um, Oh man, we're jumping just—I'm pushing these buttons. We're just jumping along here. Can we go back one more? I'll do it. I'll do it from here with my little device. All right. Let's do this one. Okay, so, okay. so the, the opposite of grumbling is teachability. Right? 
So like, I don't have to listen to you. Blah, 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 complain, complain. He's like, listen, just stop complaining and listen, right? Now, okay, first of all, this is good relationship advice, right? Like when you find yourself grumbling, you're, you're listening badly to the other person. It just, it's, it just always goes with that. So you've got to be able to be like, okay. Remember in Ephesians 4, the first four virtues of just being and staying together are humility, then gentleness, then patience, then just bearing with each other. You can't get anywhere without those virtues, right? So if you're, if you're going to me, you got to turn to that other person and let them tell you what they're saying. If that other person is God and the master, then let him teach you. Quit your grumbling and let him teach you. The, the little quirk here is there's this throwaway line that Jesus says. He, says. he says, it's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Right? And you're like, why? Why is that in here? Why would he just quote an Old Testament? Here's why. In Isaiah 54, which is right before Isaiah 55, which is the whole God giving bread and food to his people thing, he's talking about God's final kingdom and all the things that God will do that will create an inheritance for those who believe. And it's like your ramparts will be made of rubies and like there's, there's like, it's like this big picture of like um, safety, justi justification, um, protection, God's help, right? But there's this throwaway line. They will all be taught by God. And Jesus goes, you see that? They will all be taught by God. You see? Here's what you need to understand from that verse. It has a positive and a negative implication. Anybody who won't let God teach them won't be there. That's the implication. Anybody who's like, I'm not going to listen to you. Here's the thing. Jesus came as the teacher. Because in the final eschatological kingdom on the last day, everyone who is there, one of the fundamental moral, spiritual, personal conscientious realities that everybody will share. It will not be their ethnicity. It will not be their sex. It will not be any of those things. The thing that they will all have in common is they all are willing to let God teach them. And Jesus is like, listen, none of you have been to heaven. The only one that can tell you what the Father wants to teach is the Son who has been with the Father and is now teaching you. So believe in Jesus. You see the logic there? And it is the opposite of grumbling, right? The opposite of indignant self-assurance is submission. Right? You see, when they get stamped by their feet, like, this guy's insane. He's telling us to eat his flesh. How can he give us his flesh? This is insane. And Jesus is like, because they're pushing. They're like, right? So you know what gentleness means, right? Gentleness isn't weakness, right? Gentleness is, I've got plenty of force to beat the living stew out of you. But in our conflict, the amount of force I'm going to exert is going to be rooted in your needs. The dictates of love towards you, rather than me wanting to end this conflict the way I want to. That's what gentleness is. Hardest thing in parenting, maybe. Right? And so Jesus is being gentle. But you see, when, when people stand up to him and they're like throwing a tantrum, they're like, I want it my way. And you can't tell me this. Jesus does not go, you know, oh, can we negotiate? He's like, listen, say whatever you want. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, he says it in the starkest possible way. He doesn't go back to a softer metaphor. You see, he could say, look, all I mean by this is if you come to me, if you believe, if you trust me, that, like, that's what I mean. If you do the will of God, that's, that's all I mean by that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't go, Let's, let me back it up. He's like, no, listen, you want to step up to me? If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Why? Why does he do that? Is he arrogant? Is he angry? Is he nothing but wrathful? Is he, is he out of proportion? What is it? Is he emotionally unstable? No, it's that when people step up in that indignation, they use all their force of will, it has to be met. They're not behaving in accordance with truth. They're, they're behaving in accordance with power. 
And sometimes what you have to say is, is like, listen, you can stomp and piss and moan and knock yourself out blue-faced, holding your breath until I do what you tell me I have to do. I'm not doing it. You can have what I'm offering you, or you can have the not natural consequence of not getting it. Those are your options, and those are your only options. Now pick one. So he says, it's a good parent. Right? And then the last thing for failure of nerve is, and we'll end with this. You guys can come up if you want. Is when disciples are losing their faith, right? They're like, I don't know. Jesus is like, listen, it was always an either or. It was never both. You have to choose me or the world. You never could have both. And so you have to accept. You choose me and see what I give you of back of creation and see what that looks like. And that's faith. Otherwise, you never had it. You were never a disciple. And it's time to just turn back. And when you realize that, you go, okay, that's right. It was always, I have to let the world go again. I got to let all these things I'm trying to call, I got to let them go. It creates the freedom to believe, to come to him, to feed off of him, to trust him, to believe in Jesus, to receive the bread from heaven, who is the bread of life. God, as we sing right now, uh, help us to give our hearts totally to you. Help us to eat your flesh and drink your blood.